Hello and welcome to episode 122 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Michael Clare. Michael is a writer for MLB.com and Cut4. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Michael S. Clare. Mike, thanks for taking the time to join the podcast today. Uh, Ross, thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate you uh, having me on. Well, Mike, I ask everyone this at the top of the show. First question is always, tell me what got you into baseball in the first place. Ooh, that is a good question. Uh, let's see. I'm trying to think back now. Um, the first thing that got me into baseball. So the first thing I ever remember would have to be... So I, it, it's got to be Ken Griffey Jr. I mean, obviously, there's probably, you know, mom and dad throwing me plastic balls in the backyard. But the first thing I remember, I was five or six, and I was sitting, you know, Ken Griffey Jr. at that point was everywhere. He was on every commercial. He was on every box of cereal. He was at the weird Scholastic, every book at the Scholastic Book Fair was like a book about Ken Griffey Jr. So it must have been Griffey. And the first thing I remember was sorting like the, I had like 10 Ken Griffey Jr. baseball cards. And I remember sorting them into plastic bags on the floor before opening day of Dodgers Marlins. And I was so excited to watch Dodgers Marlins that night. I don't think I totally understood that Ken Griffey Jr. would not be playing in that game, but I was excited anyways. And so that to me is my first memory. And so I think it's got to, I think it has to be Griffey, which is probably the answer for, you know, everyone sort of in my generation. Do you have the 89 upper deck Griffey? I don't. I don't have the 89 upper deck Griffey. I do have a weird set of like 32 facts about Ken Griffey Jr. cards. Uh, I think at the time when I was like really into like, I want cards, but I only want Ken Griffey Jr. cards. I was, it was like, you know, insanely expensive for the rookie, but I could buy tons of other ones. And I was like, quantity is more important than quality. So I've never actually gotten around to buying the rookie card. And at this point, it's not even that expensive. Uh, but if you, if you want to come over and, and look at a collection of like 30 King Griffey Jr. cards that I believe comes with a pog of him from the minor leagues, then you can do that, and it's at my house. Okay, that sounds good. We'll make plans to do that. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Well, you wrote an excellent piece on MLB.com about the history of baseball, American baseball in the United Kingdom. So I want to talk to you about that. We're getting ahead of the uh, London series this weekend between the Red Sox and the Yankees. Major League Baseball is sending its two flagship teams to England to play a series there. And you wrote about the history of baseball there, and I thought it was a really interesting piece. Uh, It kind of started with Sir Francis Lay, and we don't really know if it's Lay or Lee, but we're going to go with Lay for the sake of this interview, L-E-Y. He was around (laughs) in the late 19th century. He loved American baseball. He came over here and saw it played, and he brought it over there. Tell me about his influence on baseball in the United Kingdom. Yeah, so he is a really interesting guy, and he actually was later knighted. Uh, You know, there aren't a whole lot of, like, industrialists especially at this time, that seemed to actually be beloved by uh, their employees. But it seems like, and granted, there's a lot we don't know about him because, you know, it's the 19th century. A lot of these things weren't kept. But so he he came over to America uh, for for business and he saw baseball. County cricket was big, but that's three to five days. And you really just had to be sort of the richest of the rich. And even Francis Lay, who owned a factory in, in Derby, uh, in England, 
he didn't have three to five days because even as a you know rich factory owner, he went to his factory and had work to do. So he saw baseball, he saw that you could play it in two to three hours. And he, was, and he was like, okay, so this is something that my employees can do. This is something that I can do. So he built an entire recreation ground near the factory. There were you know, other fields other than baseball, but he also built a baseball field actually for baseball. And this was the first one in the country. And that's a huge deal because even today, there's only a handful of dedicated baseball fields. The biggest one is Farnham Park, where all the major British baseball events happen. That's near Slough, which is the town in the UK version of the office. Uh, so I don't think it's like a huge like tourist destination for everyone to go see this park. Uh, so he built the, the, the first ground to actually play baseball. And so what he did, which was really interesting, and this was the problem, A.G. A. Spalding had made two world tours uh, before they built this field. This was around 1889-1890. And he did these tours, and people came, and they saw them, and they liked them, but they never did anything to teach people how to play the game. And what Lay did is that he hired an American coach to teach his factory workers who wanted to play how to play the game of baseball. He then brought in import players from America who actually could also work in the foundry. So kind of like you know, company teams were like, if you're an amazing shortstop, they're like, okay, you come and you will quote unquote work here, but you're basically just here to play on our company team. He had Americans imported to work at his company and play, uh, play in the game. And it is his dedication to the sport and to make it happen so that when the first professional league started in 1890, there, there were four teams. The other three were all football association teams, soccer teams that were like, we have empty stadiums, we can sell tickets, Why are, we have nothing in the summer, let's play baseball. And Lay joined that league basically because he's like, well, I'm a rich guy and I have a field and I have a dedicated team of baseball players. And because of that, they were the best team in England by far. They had wrapped up the league title by midway through the year. So really, he is almost the first like base, British baseball fanatic who at least had the money to do something about it. Yeah, and you wrote in your piece that not only was the team so dominant in destroying the other three teams, but the other teams were asking him not to play their best pitcher or their other best players, and he refused, and he pulled out of the league, and then the league kind of fell apart very quickly after that. Yeah, you know, surprisingly, when you have a professional league and you're asking the best players to sit, and when they don't, the team pulls out, surprisingly, that's not great for the league to continue. Uh, but yeah, that's what happened is that they were so good. The, the other teams, the, the best hitter in the league that year was uh, Jack Devey, D-E-V-E-Y. Uh, he was the Aston Villa soccer player. So clearly the athletic talent these teams had meant that they could just naturally one day pick up a bat and play. But overall, that wasn't the case. You still needed instruction and skill. And that's what Lay's teams had. And they were so good, they basically killed the pro league, but fortunately there were pockets, especially around Derby. And as time goes on, you see them show up in Hull and Liverpool where there are really passionate baseball fans. And that led to the birth of at this time in the 1890s, a really strong amateur league uh, that, you know, has come and gone over the years, but uh, it was really largely due to lay and his influence and his desire to have baseball as a sport than it even happened at this time. Well, I found that to be one of the interesting things in the article you wrote is that 
So when this professional league met its demise, a bunch of amateur leagues did pop up, and it was popular for a while, but then, almost at the same time, these amateur leagues just disappeared. Why did that happen? That is the question that if I, you know, I've spent a few months working on this, and I could probably spend a few years trying to answer that question. I don't know if we will ever get it. There, there are some British baseball sort of like scholarly articles uh, where they talk about like 1890 to 1899 and they talk about like 1906 to like 1915. And, but there's this gap around 1900 where the leagues die out and nobody talks about it. Now, part of the issue was that even during the sort of the first height of baseball from 1890 to like 1899, the newspapers aren't really talking about it that much. There is, there does appear to have been a sort of feeling around the country that cricket was a sport to be played, soccer, rugby, but baseball, not really. And part of that is that there's a version of baseball. It's actually the first version. David Block wrote a great book uh, that just came out called Pastimes Lost, that actually baseball might be able to be traced back to England in the late 17th century, but it was mostly played by school children and like as a kind of party game. So some people looked at baseball, they didn't really see the American version, but they heard the name baseball and they assumed it was the sort of easy to play, it doesn't take that much game. The other is that there was a reason to push cricket. Uh, the other is we're not that far removed from things like the revolution. So uh, if America is known for baseball and Britain has these other sports that are considered British, and this is conjecture on my part, um, you know, I've talked to some people who have mentioned this as a possibility, so I'm not you know, totally making it up. But uh, there is some belief that, like, well, Britain plays cricket, America plays baseball, so we don't really want to push baseball. Uh, so really, there wasn't much coverage even when these leagues were sort of at their height in the 1800s. So when they disappeared, there's really nothing to go on at this point to know why they disappeared. And even later, so, you know, in the 1950s or 60s, when Brian Clough takes over at Derby County, the uh, soccer team. They had memorabilia from the Francis Lay teams, and he told the club to throw everything away, including soccer stuff, but throw all of the old memorabilia away because he wanted to focus on, like, the now. And so there's the history, even at this one club, is just thrown to the garbage and is, you know, rotting in a landfill somewhere because nobody thought it was important to keep uh, and, and remember. So um, it's just gone, and that might be one of the great mysteries. If anyone has a document, a newspaper article, let me know, because I would love to see that. I'd love to offer an update on, on why that, why it just all kind of disappeared at once. Oh, that's heartbreaking that so much history was thrown out there. That's terrible to hear. In the 1930s, this is really when baseball reached its peak popularity in England. It was led by a gambling tycoon named John Moores. He basically was paying teams to play and was very enthusiastic. He was another super rich guy who came over here, saw American baseball, met Babe Ruth. And he was, uh, there were teams playing, uh, you had mentioned a different style of baseball. Were those teams playing the kid, the childlike version of baseball that he basically paid them to convert to play American baseball? Uh, it's a little different. So this version was called Welsh baseball. So this is this is where things do get a little confusing. And if this sounds interesting to you, this David Block is like your guy, and his new book really gets into like how they splintered off. Uh, I believe Welsh baseball is eleven players per team. Uh, now John Moore's. There's a bunch of reasons. Obviously, he liked baseball and he cared about baseball. Uh, 
so yes, he paid a, a substantial amount of money to get them to switch over. He paid each team. So basically, it was a hundred pounds in nineteen. I want to say thirty-three, uh, which is the equivalent of nine thousand dollars now. And essentially, these teams are like rec teams. So imagine if you were playing any sport. Imagine you had a a base. Uh, imagine you have a little league team playing baseball, and some someone comes up and says, "We'll pay you nine thousand dollars to go play handball." Chances are you're going to go play handball. So that's what he did. He paid all these teams to play this version of the game, and that really kickstarted it. Within two years, there was another semi-pro league uh, around. He's he's in Liverpool, and so there's a semi-pro league that is born there. A year later, a more semi-pro leagues are in Yorkshire and London. Obviously, London is hugely important if baseball is ever going to take off in Britain because, you know, it's sort of the central hub of everything. It's this giant city. And in one year, I believe it was either 1937 or 1938, he spent half a million pounds trying to make baseball happen in the country. And it kind of did, which is what's really amazing. Is that the story of British baseball is kind of that there's these baseball fanatics out there and if they care enough and they have any kind of financial backing, whether it's from themselves or another organization, they can make it happen. Because that's what John Morris did. And that's pretty amazing. Yeah, and it was getting to a point where it was growing in popularity later in the decade in the 1930s. He organized a all-star tournament, John Moores versus the United States. And this happened in 1938. They played a best-of-five series. It was the English All-Stars versus American All-Stars. Everyone thought that the United States would crush them, and it ended up being the opposite way. I think they, you mentioned that the uh, English Stars won the series four games to one. They had a shutout. Who were some of the American Stars playing in that series? So, yeah, this is what is a really uh, very cool series because uh, this was, they called it a test series at the time. They now kind of look at it as like the first World Cup of baseball or like amateur world championships. Um, this is a team. So, the, the English team was a mixture of English people and Canadians. That's actually sort of what the strongest uh, collection of. Uh, players were, were Canadians who had British citizenship. It's kind of what we see now with the World Baseball Classic for, you know, countries like Italy or, or Israel, where it's, they have uh, multiple uh, citizenships that they can claim. So that was kind of the English side, but the American side was all of these amateur players that were selected by uh, uh, Leslie Mann to prepare for the Olympics in the, for the 1940 Olympics. So this was supposed to be like, we're gearing up for the Olympics. Uh, the players, I, unfortunately, I don't have them in front of me. They didn't go on to have, there's no players that went on to have an amazing career. A, a few of them had pro careers, but it was kind of like an all-star team of college students in a way. And much like today, the best, you know, sort of college students who were playing the sport would have beaten this British team. I feel like if they did this series 100 times, the Americans would have won 100 times, or 99 times. And this was the one time that, that Britain was able to win. And, and it was actually uh, Ross Kendrick threw the shutout. And this is what's kind of amazing. This was 16 batters in that game. So something was up. Britain was just having this amazing moment. But it is this moment that could have sprung British baseball into the future because they won this huge series. John Moore's donated this amazingly outlandish trophy. I kind of wish this was the World Series trophy because it's so absolutely silly. It's 
there's little tiny baseballs as the feet of it with baseball bats, like structural support, a giant baseball, a photo of John Moore's at the center of it. I think it is the funniest looking, most amazing trophy. I love it. Uh, and that was supposed to go to the amateur champion every year. And I think they did continue giving it out. But unfortunately, what happened, thanks to the war that came, is the 1940 and 44 Olympics were canceled. Uh, the 1940 World Cup in Cuba was canceled. So all the places where Britain could have gone and would have maybe received funding from either people who cared about this or you know some, a federation, that's all gone because they're not playing. And so baseball just dies. And so all this work that happened kind of was taken out uh, because of you know, the, the, of World War II. Baseball in the United Kingdom, in London, it never got that popularity back. After World War II, it cut that momentum, and it never really got it back, though Major League Baseball is trying now. They are sending the Red Sox and the Yankees there to play a series. Look, this is their flagship rivalry. They're going to see a lot of the game's biggest stars. What are the expectations for Major League Baseball, do you think, that they're hoping for with this series in England now? So that, that's a really... Interesting question. I don't think Major League Baseball expects that by doing this this year, you know, in a week, there's going to be this huge following. You kind of look at what the NFL did playing games every year for, I think, a decade now. And when I, so I was in England, totally unrelated, just, you know, to go and hang out. Uh, I saw a ton of NFL caps. And so people are really starting to care about this. So the fact that they're playing this year, the fact that they've already announced next year, we've got Cubs and Cardinals, another great matchup. I think this means that Major League Baseball does see this as a market where people are interested, but you have to slowly cultivate that. You know, one of the things is that Channel 5 used to show baseball every week. Now it was late, it was shown live, and so, you know, you would get, you know, college students late at night, people who couldn't sleep, but it was on terrestrial TV and you could just watch it. The problem is, is that uh, around the time of the recession, they didn't have the money for that any longer. And so now baseball is on pay TV channels. So you're only getting the people who are already self-selected sports fanatics, baseball fanatics who want to see this. So bringing the games there and making it an exciting atmosphere, I do think is, if you're playing the long game, the way to do it. You know, I've, I've seen some people talking that there's these pubs in England that you know, they mostly cater to just general sports fans, but they are going to be open. They're going to have hot dogs. People are excited to watch it. They're probably not big baseball fans, but, you know, think about 10 years ago, sort of what the English Premier League was in America. You had your soccer fanatics. You had your people who just kind of liked sports and liked waking up at 7 in the morning to watch soccer. And it took a couple years of, you know, NBC having it, having, you know, uh, the U.S. men's national team do so well in 2014 to sort of make soccer a more viable thing. So I do think it's going to take some time. One of the interesting things is that you will see baseball hats in England. You'll see, obviously, the Yankees a lot, the Red Sox, you know, the White Sox because of Chance the Rapper. Uh, There are a lot of – baseball in England, in a way, is sort of a fashion thing, is that they know famous people who wear their hats or that they want to sort of identify with an American sport less than knowing about the game itself. You know, they probably – if you're wearing a Red Sox hat, you might know who the Red Sox are. Maybe you know who David Ortiz is. Maybe you even know who Mookie Betts is. But you're probably not tuning in every week. But maybe this is the type of thing that turns those people into fans, and it's just going to take some time. Yeah, and I think another thing they're hoping for is, I don't know what the amateur development cycle is like in 
London? Do they have an organized Little League there? Are kids playing baseball there in the same way that they play here or anything even remotely close? Because what would really get people interested is if there's a star from London. If there's a star baseball player playing in the United States, I think that would go a long way. It helped basketball explode in China when Yao Ming became a star. Obviously, Ichiro coming over and being a star here, that's a big deal. And I think if they can get some players to actually be from England to play in Major League Baseball and they get a star, that would be that would be substantial. And I think having games there and, and just showing them the game is one way to do that. That's the big question. Part of it is in, in London, you can get Little League because London has so many American expats and Japanese expats who are there that know baseball, want baseball, will play baseball. But outside of London, this is really kind of hit or miss. And it just depends on if there are people there who like baseball. Liverpool, as I, you know, I said earlier, Liverpool has a pocket. If you're in Liverpool, there's you know, baseball fans there. If you're in Hull, but the country as a whole, uh, it, it really just depends. And that's sort of the problem is that there will be a little league for you know, five years or whatever because there's a family there who really loves baseball and wants to you know, get a team going because they've got a kid and they want them to play baseball. So you, know, you get the other neighborhood kids to do it. But then the kid ages out of little league. Maybe they move away. Maybe they're just tired of the amount of work. And then the next person isn't there to step up and, and, and do it. Uh, you know, I, I talked to Liam Carroll, who is the head coach of the Great Britain national team, and they came within one win of reaching the World Baseball Classic uh, in 2017. And the only reason he got to play baseball in England growing up is that his dad was a huge Brooklyn Dodgers fan. And so he made sure that there was a men's league baseball team. It started as a softball team. They converted to baseball. Liam Carroll got to play baseball because there was somebody who really cared about it. And that's true both from you know, a youth level to running these teams to an adult level. You know, the London Mets right now uh, have won three of the last four British Baseball League championships. They, weren't, they only had youth teams uh, about 10 or 15 years ago. And then Josh Chetwin, who has kind of done everything in British baseball, and I, I, I talked to him for a long time in the piece, he was the one who managed that team and turned them into a club that had an adult side. So the story still to this day is you need someone who just loves this so much and they're going to sacrifice time, money, effort to do it. So the plan moving forward, and this is something Liam Carroll really cared about, and he thinks this is the way it has to be going forward, is get baseball in schools. You know, if you're relying on having a Little League team, it just depends on if there's someone there who cares. If you can get it into schools and it's part of sort of like the physical education program, then kids grow up no matter what, at least knowing about baseball. And if they're interested, they can kind of pursue it. Um, and, uh, you know, because right now there are, there's never been a British player drafted in the majors. There's a few players who've like played D3 baseball over here. And that's kind of the height of it right now, just because there's not enough structural support there. And if you're a really good athlete, you know, the other thing is if you're in Britain and you're, you can play cricket, you can play soccer, you can play baseball, chances are if you're really that talented, you're, you're good at other sports and you might see a viable career in the other sports, but you probably don't see a viable career in baseball. And so that's another thing. By having the major league teams here, maybe it's a, hey, you can play this and you can make a lot of money doing it. 
Yeah, and there's no harm that's going to come from the series. It's good exposure. They're exposing a, the game to to a new crowd and to new people. And if nothing comes of it but that, that's nothing but good right there. So good for Major League Baseball. I'm glad that they're doing it again, too. So it should be fun this weekend. I'm looking forward to it. I do want to move off of uh, English baseball or the history of American baseball in England for a little bit and ask you a little bit about Cut 4. Cut 4 is MLB.com's branch where you do get to do some sillier and some weird things there, some stuff that I like a lot. What is your favorite weird moment of this season so far? Uh, there are uh, so many. Um, one just today that I really love was just uh, Joey Votto was upset at a heckling fan. And so just, but you know, he knows he can't really do anything. So he just, you know, blew him a raspberry. But I think my favorite thing this year is the weird effect that Hunter Pence is having on the Rangers and the length of their pants. Hunter Pence is a baseball weirdo. I got to talk to him on the phone earlier this year. He's also one of the nicest, coolest guys. He loves board games or anything. But also just the way he dresses is unlike anyone. He pulls his socks up over his pants, over his knees. And so this year, though, his Rangers teammates have been doing the same thing. Ronald Guzman has pulled them up really high. Carlos Santana went even higher. And then recently, Ruggenetto Dorr essentially turned his baseball pants into cutoff shorts. He pulled his socks up about mid-thigh, if not a little bit higher. And not only do I just think that's amazing, it does, it, I don't think it could be that comfortable, but I also was like, unless he stuck them in all the way down to his ankles, he went and probably asked the equipment manager, hey, could you like cut these, hem them? You know, he doesn't want too much extra material. Can you hem these so they can go on the field and wear them essentially as shorts? I don't think he's done it since then. So I don't know if he's like trying to like break a slump or something, but that just bizarre piece of baseball fashion breaking uh, and the first player to essentially wear shorts since like the mid-1970s White Sox has been my favorite thing. And whenever I watch a Rangers game, I'm always very tuned into what the players are wearing. Yeah, that's very good. Well, you'd think they'd want actual shorts because it's going to get to a point where it's going to be 110 degrees for every game there. So they, they may actually want those great shorts of the 70s White Sox <laughs> that, that I love. Yes, exactly. Listen, basketball's going back to shorter shorts. You know, when you see runners out, the super short shorts are in. It's time for baseball to embrace the super short shorts. I, yeah, there you go. That's what we need. That's what we need. More short shorts, but still yeah. with the More with the socks. Shorts. Oh, obviously. I mean, you know, we're not going to be crazy. And it hurts to slide. <laughs> Anyone who's you know playing in the backyard knows that. So, well, I saw on your your Twitter profile that you are a big fan of Lacroix. So we're going to do yes. a quick power rankings of your top three favorite Lacroix flavors. I'll do All mine right. as well. Go ahead. Let's start. Let's not delay here. Let's start with number one. Your best flavor. Your go to. Oh man, this is gonna. This is a controversial pick because I know most people hate it, but the people who love it, they love it. Coconut. Mm, yeah, I'm already out. <laughs> like, okay, so do you think it tastes like uh, sun suntan lotion? Because that seems to be what people who don't like it tend to say. Yeah, it has like a um, it has a metallic taste to it, and I feel like if I want <laughs> coconut in liquid form. The Bywaters are the best with coconut, but I don't like any of the other flavors. I just like their coconut flavors. Interesting. Okay. All right. So, I listen, I think their coconut, it feels like summer. I will say, I don't drink it in the winter, but like, what is it, 90-something degrees outside today? A nice coconut LaCroix as you like sit maybe on the High Line or something, there's nothing better. 
My number one is Grapefruit. And I know that they have the French title, but I am a big fan of the Grapefruit. That is the most popular in our household. My wife likes it, too. So whenever we get it, that is our go-to number one, Grapefruit. And to me, it's a pretty clean, easy, easy path to number one. Your thoughts on the Grapefruit? So, listen, I'm a big fan of the Grapefruit. I will say, have you tried Ruby Red Grapefruit from Polar yet? Yes. Oh, yes. See, Polar is cheaper, so we often go with that. But, you know, (laughs) we mix it up. I think think I used to... Pamplemousse used to be my number one, and yes, I'm going to use the French title. Pamplemousse used to be my number one, and then I did a blind taste test between the two of them. And the crisp, refreshing vibe of Polar's Ruby Red forced me to move Pamplemousse down because I now can't taste it without thinking, this is good, but it could be so much better. What do you have as number two on your list? Number two. Okay, so are we accepting the weird, skinny, tall cans? Or are those out because they're not core products? No, I think I think we'll accept anything. All right. Then my second one, Cerise Limon, Cherry Lime. That one is just, that's just juice at this point. I, I don't know how they did it, but I love that one. Thoughts on Cerise Limon? I actually really like that one, too. Didn't quite make my yes. top three, but would make, would probably make the All top right. five. Uh, my number two oh, is man. the Kiwi Watermelon. Really? Oh, my God. Okay, this is that. To me, this is outrageous. What you just said is insane. The kiwi watermelon I find to be very refreshing, especially around this time of the year. Uh, it's uh, I just find it to be a delicious flavor. I mean, listen, I'm glad you like it. I'm glad they've made a product for you. But that watermelon taste is, that is a poor artificial substitute for watermelon. The kiwi, I, the kiwi part sounds great. I just want them to go back and reformulate that watermelon to bring it up a little bit. How about number three on your list? Number three, this is tough. This is this is really close for me. I'm going apricot. See, this this isn't the uh, this isn't the one that is also like apricot pear that has no pear in it. Oh no no no! Oh okay. no no! Definitely not doing any of the peach pear. Just okay, the, the, yeah, the peach pear has clean. no pear in it. No, the peach pear is that's a that's a weak flavor. Uh, I, I that one. You know, I actually, I'm, I'm looking at my ranking. I have a document because every time I had one, you know, I, I got to go back and look at it. Peach pear is way down there for me at 15th. But apricot is crisp. It's clean. It, it's sharp. It's sweet. It's not too sweet. I think apricot is just a – I don't like – and that's the thing. I don't like actual apricot, but I love the apricot LaCroix. My number three is a boring one, but it is a good one. Their lime seltzer is delicious, and I that is what I probably have most often outside of the grapefruit is their lime. I find it to be delicious. I know it's boring that every seltzer has lime, but if you're a seltzer company <laughs> and you can't do lime and lemon right, then you're not going to be in business for a long time. So I like their lime because it's fairly rind-heavy, right? Am I, am I remembering correctly? Oh, yeah. It's, it's very, yeah, very lime-heavy. <laughs> Now, uh, have you had the key lime yet, and how do you feel? Because lime for me is, is mid-range, but key lime is way up there for me. So I wonder, since you're a lime lover, do you hate the key lime? No, I enjoy the key lime, too. I think that's a, it's a okay. nice one, but I pure, I'm a purist okay. with the lime. I like the key lime, but I like the actual <laughs> lime more. And I like their lemon, too, but, you know, not the most exciting choices, but I do find them to be both very good. Wow. You know what? This works out because actually lemon is by far my least favorite. I think it tastes like a cleaning solution. But if we were at a cookout and somebody brought like a variety pack, this works out. You'll take all the ones I don't like and I'll go for the ones that you're not drinking. And then we're set. If we have the same ones, we'd, we'd be out of the flavors we want. 
that sounds that sounds ideal actually it's like one person being yeah. a frosting person and the other being a cake person well he can everybody yeah. can be happy <laughs> exactly so I disagree. I think your taste buds are insane, but they work out. If we were at a cookout, this would be great. That's absolutely correct. Now, you mentioned quickly that Hunter Pence is a board game geek. Did he mention to you any of his favorites or what he's playing right now? Oh, he did. Uh, I'm trying to remember because he did mention them, but, you know, I talked to him a couple months ago. I'm trying to think. I did tell him to play because I've become a bit of a board game person. I mean, this is a game that I guess if you're a board game person, it's like the first game that you play because it's on all the like, uh, you know, make sure you play them. I told him to play The Thing and uh, Haunting at the Hill House or whatever the title is. That's the actual name. Uh, okay, so he said, I just found it. Uh, he listed Settlers of Catan, a classic, and Munchkin as the one that he and his wife Lexi love to play the most. Okay, that's very cool. My wife and I... Uh, are always looking for two-player games. We've just gotten into Hive. Have you ever played Hive? No, but I need two-player games, so please tell me more about Hive. Hive, I guess you could say it's kind of like a modern twist on chess. There's no board. Your goal in this game is to surround your opponent's Queen Bee. Everyone is given insects that can each move differently. You have ants that can move all around the Hive. You have beetles that can move on top of the hive, you have grasshoppers that can jump across the hive, and you have spiders that move three spots at a time. So every, all of these animals uh, all move in different ways. They're all connected. You one, uh, one player to start the game puts out a tile, one of the bugs, and then the other person does the same, and the hive must always be connected, and then you place a piece you have to start on your own side, but once you're touching your own colors, you can move it along with the corresponding move. So if you're the ant, you can move it all around. And your goal is to surround your opponent's queen, and it doesn't have to be just with your colors. It can be with the their colors, too. It's just to get it fully surrounded. And it's a super fun game that you can play in 15 minutes, and it's a lot of strategy, and we love it. Sweet. Okay. Uh, I am going to go get high because I am desperate for two-player games. So, well, there you go. I feel like we covered a lot here. The history of baseball <laughs> in England, yeah. LaCroix power rankings, and board game yeah. reviews. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, this is, uh, this is like a regular variety show. So, You've been listening to Michael Clare. Michael is a writer for MLB.com and Cut4. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Michael S. Clare. Mike, thanks for taking the time to join the podcast. I really enjoyed it. Oh my God, thank you so much. This, this was phenomenal. So thank you for having me.